Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. In today's episode, we continue our verse-by-verse exposition of the book of Romans. Last time, we discussed three reasons why Paul is not ashamed of the gospel based on Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. Those reasons were that, number one, the gospel reveals God's power. Number two, the gospel points to Christ, who saves everyone who believes. And number three, the gospel reveals God's righteousness. Today, we will talk about the fourth reason why Paul is not ashamed of the gospel, because in it, the righteousness of God is appropriated by faith. Now, before we get to reason number four, let's dive into our text. Romans 1 verses 16 to 17 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. In verse number 17, the apostle says that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Revealed is translated from a word that means to uncover, bring to light, or to make fully known. So to build upon what we talked about last time, without God's intervention, man is unrighteous in that he is not right with God. So in the gospel, God reveals his own righteousness. It is not a righteousness that men create, nor is it something that men discover. In fact, men were never searching for divine righteousness in the first place. God is the agent who reveals his righteousness, and the gospel is the announcement of that revelation. The content of the gospel message, or the content of what is revealed, is the righteousness of God. The church must understand something. If God merely reveals himself, like his law, his glory, or his perfection, that is not good news to a person at all. If God reveals his ultimate perfection, the only thing that would do is reveal how imperfect we are. For example, when God revealed himself at Mount Sinai, the Hebrews were terrified because they caught a glimpse of Almighty God. As a result, they asked for a mediator to go between them and the Lord to minimize the trauma. Additionally, what God revealed at Sinai was his law. That was also traumatizing because the law proved to be impossible to keep. It revealed that what God demands, we are incapable of supplying. So when the Apostle Paul writes that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, this does not simply refer to God disclosing more about himself. Rather, this revelation is of God's righteousness to his elect. The result of that revelation is effectual on us. The result is a new man that desires to glorify God and conforms to God's commands. The point of all of this is that the gospel reveals not only what God has done for us through Christ, but it also reveals what he has done to us. What he has done to us is reveal his righteousness in order to declare us righteous. The question now becomes, how is the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel? 
Verse 17 says it is revealed from faith to faith. So what does that mean? Well, before we unpack what from faith to faith means, we must first define what faith is. The classic definition of what faith is can be found in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. That text says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, speaking from my own personal experience, I have met many Christians who can recite Hebrews 11.1 by heart, but they still don't actually understand what they are reciting. So in plain language, faith simply means trusting God. You don't trust yourself, you don't trust the market, you don't trust secular ideology, you simply trust God. The righteous person lives not by his or her own prescriptions, but by the prescriptions of the Lord. Granted, this trust is never blind or ignorant in that no one has genuine faith in God just because. Faith is never zeal without knowledge. It is never feelings without facts. One who is born again trusts in God, his promises, and his redemption plan as revealed in the Bible. And by the way, His redemption plan is the only plan that redeems. Real biblical faith involves the totality of a man. It involves an intelligent, informed knowledge of who God is and what He has done through His Son. But more than that, it also involves assenting that God's revelation in His Word is true. Thus, faith involves the mind. But more than that, Faith also means a hearty trust of God, which engages the heart and the will. Faith therefore engages the mind with truth, that truth persuades the heart, and the persuaded heart begets a compelled will that takes action. Faith encompasses the whole person, so the man who has faith says, God said it, and it is therefore true. I believe it, and I obey it, because I trust God. With that definition of faith now clear, let's revisit what Paul says in verse 17, that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. From faith to faith refers to the simple reality that the righteousness of God is never revealed by an instrument other than faith. You see, God reveals his righteousness, but many people don't pay God any mind. Many people don't want to be bothered with God. So, even though he proclaims his gospel, many do not want to hear. In such cases, there is no saving faith. This, of course, is unfortunate because those who reject the gospel reject the only thing that can save them. But for others, they do respond to the gospel message, and that response is to trust God. God therefore reveals his righteousness to those who responded to the gospel with faith. Hence, the phrase from faith to faith in Romans 1.17 suggests a continuity of faith. This aligns with the whole canon of Scripture, which tells us that those who are regenerated do not believe in God as an isolated event. Once the Holy Spirit regenerates someone, they express saving faith and then continue to express saving faith throughout their life. The righteous person lives by faith, and thus the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Now we arrive at the fourth and final reason why Paul is not ashamed of the gospel, because in it the righteousness of God is appropriated by faith. 
This is not to suggest that our faith is a work. Rather, our faith is a response that we are enabled to have as a result of God working in us. And faith is the instrument that appropriates the righteousness of God. Faith is not the cause of our salvation, nor does faith justify us. What our faith does do is enable us to cleave to Christ, and He is the one who justifies us. That's a critical point not to miss. You could have all the faith in the world, but without Christ, that faith saves no one. In fact, all the faith in the world that's not in Christ is not biblical faith. But even with a mustard seed amount of faith, as long as the object of your trust is Christ, He saves all who believe. Beloved, faith does not equal righteousness, and faith does not equal justification. We trust in Christ, and it is His finished work, and it is His righteousness that makes a man right with God. That rightness comes through faith. As Philippians 3.9 says, And be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The last thing Paul writes in verse 17 is, But the righteous man shall live by faith. This is actually a quotation from Habakkuk 2.4, which is one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. I say that because God found the proper to repeat himself four times, so we ought to pay attention. But the righteous man shall live by faith is first stated in Habakkuk 2.4, then in Romans 1.17, Galatians 3.11, and finally in Hebrews 10.38. Here in Romans 1.17, the basic point being made is that the life we live under God is characterized by righteousness, and the way by which that righteousness is obtained is by faith. And because the righteous person lives by faith, they live by faith in perpetuity. The only place where faith ends is in heaven, where we will actually see God face to face. Consequently, using the logic of verse 17, if a righteous person lives by faith, then an unrighteous person dies by unbelief. It's no coincidence then that Paul begins talking about the unrighteous person in the next verse. But before we move on to Romans 1.18, there are a few more things to discuss in Romans 1.17. Again, here Paul quotes the Old Testament, Habakkuk 2.4. The central message of the book of Habakkuk was that faith is fundamental to a person's relationship to God. Back in Habakkuk's time, before the incarnation of Christ, faith simply meant trusting God. What was not revealed back then was neither how God could justly forgive sinners, nor how he would reveal his righteousness. Now, in the New Testament era, faith still means trusting God, but the precise object of our faith is Jesus. So, even in the midst of a world that is crumbling, or a reality that is literally being swept away, we do not place ultimate trust in what we see or experience. We put ultimate trust in Christ. We trust Christ because He is the one who pays for our sin at Calvary. He is also the one whom obeyed the law of God fully for us. Because Christ achieved God's perfect righteousness, we appropriate that righteousness by trusting in Him. By faith, then, a man is declared to be right with God. 
being right with the Lord, who holds your eternity in his hands, is nothing to ever be ashamed of. This is why the Apostle Paul is not ashamed of the gospel, because in it the righteousness of God is appropriated by faith. This is the fourth and final reason why Paul is not ashamed. When we now take a big step back, we see not only Romans chapter 1 verses 16 to 17, but also the epistle to the Romans overall. And in this epistle, what materializes very quickly is a core doctrine of the Christian faith. That core doctrine is justification by faith alone. Justification simply refers to being declared righteous by God. The great reformer Martin Luther called justification the chief article from which all other doctrines flowed. He also said it is the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. Now why is justification by faith alone such a big deal? What was Martin Luther implying when he said it is the chief article from which all other doctrines flowed? Well, being declared righteous is a big deal because if you are not justified, then you are not at peace with God. If you are not at peace with the sovereign God of the universe, then you don't stand a chance and nothing else matters. The only way a person can be right with God is if God says, you're okay. Thus, without justification, a person is at war with God. With justification, a person has peace with God. The Apostle Paul will go on to write in Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Without justification, a person must be condemned. With justification, a person can never be anything other than redeemed because God is the one who justifies. Romans 3.26 Justification is a big deal because when God declares a person righteous, that means the relationship between the person and God has been repaired. What damaged the relationship is sin. You cannot make it to heaven, nor can you delight in God's presence in eternity, unless the sin that severed the relationship between you and God is dealt with. Who is the only one who mediates for us and repairs a broken relationship? Jesus. That is to say, only God can repair the broken relationship between God and man. Because Christ is the key, we are never declared righteous by our own merit. Rather, we are justified by faith in the one who achieved perfect righteousness in his life, who atoned for sin at the cross, and who rose from the dead. Negatively, Jesus takes away the penalty for all of our sin at the cross. Positively, he imputes all of his perfect righteousness to us. For this reason, the biblical doctrine of justification points to what God already did. Now, who can ever do better than what Christ already accomplished? No one. That is why we simply trust Jesus. Thus, we are justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Titus 3.7 says, So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Galatians 2.16-17 says, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, 
even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. Galatians 3.24 says, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Romans 3.28 says, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. The preacher and Bible teacher John MacArthur always says, The cardinal question every person must answer in life is, How can I get right with God? No one can correctly answer the question without Christ, because no one can correctly answer the question without God. Trying to get right with God without God is senseless. Subsequently, to the question, how can I get right with God, the answer is justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. As 1 Timothy 2.5 says, there is only one mediator between God and man, Jesus. This now begs another question. What is the danger of drifting away from the biblical doctrine of justification by faith alone? Using the words of Martin Luther, why would the church fall if it abandons this chief article? The answer is that if the church ever drifts away from justification by faith alone, then it is no longer a church. The danger is that what you have left is not biblical Christianity, but a Christless, crossless forgery that is a religion of works. The result is that the masses are led directly through the gates of hell. Think about it. Justification by faith alone communicates the simple Bible fact that the only way a man gets right with God is through the person and work of Jesus Christ. If there was a doctrine of justification that was not by faith alone, essentially what that doctrine would communicate is that a man could get right with God by means of a way separate from faith in Christ, separate from trusting in God's accomplishments. First, this fraudulent idea would make God out to be a liar because the Lord is the one who sent his Son, and the Lord is the one who said all those believe in the Son would not perish, John 3.16. Second, the result of such a radical idea would be that a person would be trusting in someone other than Jesus. According to the Bible, that is sin. It's called idolatry. The result is not justification, but condemnation. Third, this heretical idea would minimize what Christ has accomplished at Calvary by suggesting there are adequate alternatives. Invariably, because these alternatives minimize what God has already done, they exalt what man can do. What results is not biblical Christianity, but a religion of merit where a fallen man can justify himself based upon works. What results is that people can therein look to Jesus and the cross and simply shrug their shoulders because what they see is neither essential nor exclusively effectual for salvation. What results is that Jesus now becomes a functional savior in that he serves a man-centered function. What results is that the point of everything is no longer God but me and God is a means for me to get something else. Church, the gospel makes a man just before God. How does it do that? By communicating the doctrine of justification by faith alone. 
And how does God make a person just before him? By revealing the precise righteousness that he demands of us. This righteousness was achieved by Christ, who satisfied the full demands of the law. And although Christ was sinless and innocent, he also suffered the penalty of breaking the law. Hence, there is now absolutely nothing that the law can demand of Jesus because he fulfilled all of it. This is why we simply have faith in Jesus Christ. Justification conveys more than just believing in a God who reigns somewhere out there. It's more than communicating doing what is moral or what seems religious, cognizant that all the right that a person does never atones for all the sin they have committed. Hence, as long as the church preaches justification by faith alone, it directs people to Jesus, the one and only Redeemer. Any rejection of justification by faith alone is a rejection of the gospel and is therefore a rejection of God's salvation plan. The rejection of justification by faith alone means you tacitly accept condemnation by works. This rejection produces false conversions, really easy believism, and false assurance. In the end, rejecting justification by faith alone means God's salvation plan through the cross is not good enough. Since it's not good enough, now a person requires substitutes. The bad news is that substitutes do not save. Only God does. This will conclude our exposition of Romans 1 verses 16 to 17. But before I close, I will draw an analogy to make all of the doctrines clear. Please note, the sequence of the events I describe will not be precise in how they actually happen in the life of a believer, but my intent is to merely paint the big picture. Imagine a courtroom where God is the judge. What Paul tells us in the first three chapters of Romans is that all human beings have a fixed appointment to stand before God and all human beings come into God's courtroom guilty. That is because everyone is a sinner. Sinners commit sins and sin is cosmic treason in the eyes of the Lord. God is not a pushover and his justice demands that a penalty be paid for sin. That penalty is death. So how does anyone survive? Who will save us and who will plead our case? What do you do with your guilt, especially if you don't believe in the God who is a judge? Even if God wanted to pardon us, how could he do so and still be just? In fact, if God simply forgave someone who was guilty, that would be immoral and a perversion of justice. That would make God not a just judge, but a cruel and evil one. If a man commits mass murder and walks into a courtroom and the judge simply says, it's okay, I forgive you, you are free to go, a riot would ensue because even unsaved people would realize that is not justice but horrendous wickedness. So when a guilty man stands before God, what options does he have? Well, if a person defends themselves based upon who they are or what they have done, they don't stand a chance if they argue with a perfect and holy God. The bad news is that a creature cannot make a case before the Creator. The good news is that God has provided a way by which he can justly pardon guilty sinners. The good news is the gospel. By faith, Jesus now is the advocate for the elect. He is God, so now God pleads our case before God. 
before we ever stepped into the courtroom, Jesus took upon his shoulders all the sin we would ever commit. As our substitute, he bore the penalty for our sins on the cross by enduring the wrath of God. Through his sacrifice, the justice of a holy God was satisfied. That justice demanded that someone had to die for sin. So now, when God looks at us, he does not see our sin and seek vengeance because the penalty for that sin has already been paid. As a result, in the courtroom, Jesus uses his pierced hands, removes our filthy, stained robes, and places his robes of perfect righteousness on us. Now when the judge looks at us, he does not say guilty, he says justified. After being declared righteous, a person is acceptable and is therefore enabled to stand in the Lord's presence. For the elect, they entered into that courtroom not right with God. They left being justified and are now free to live. But they do not live doing what they want to do. They live remembering and treasuring what Christ did for them. Being pardoned, they are now free to live for God. They are free because they are a transformed person. They are a new creature with a new mind, heart, and will. They understand that God died so that they can live. They understand that grace is free, but it is not cheap. The result is that they live a life that reflects their love of their Savior, and this has radical, real, palpable effects in who they are and how they live. This plays out as an abhorrence to sin, an obedience to God's word, and a desire to do that which is right. It also has real, radical, palpable effects on an interpersonal level, in the church, and in society and the world at large. And when we think about the courtroom analogy, one of the most heartwarming pearls to treasure is this, that the judge is not cruel, angry, and tyrannical. The judge is a judge who is merciful. The judge is a God, rich in love and mercy, who desires to pardon sinners. This is why he sent his son into the world in the first place. Psalm 136.5, Ephesians 2.4, 1 John 4.14, Luke 19.10. What an encouragement it is to believe in the God of pardons. Nehemiah 9.17. I hope I made all of that as clear as possible. A key take-home point from that analogy is that the only means by which someone is saved is by God's means. In God's courtroom, no one is free to do what is right in their own eyes. Only God can save you from the just wrath of God, so the only means by which anyone is saved is by faith in the God-man, Jesus Christ. Beloved, Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Therefore, everyone desperately needs Jesus Christ, whether they know it or not. Thank you for listening. For more valuable resources, including a bookstore and online Bible study, visit wcsk.org.